Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today, we're talking about the collapse of America. Oh, wow. No. <laughs> Not really the collapse, Justin. I know you get scared when I say that, but we're talking with an author who thinks a lot about the collapse of America and has written several books on the topic, hasn't he? Well, not even the collapse of the United States, but even more so the decline of American culture and how that results in an eventual collapse. And, you know, we're living in the days of decline and collapse right now. We see it all around us. And what we're talking with author Morris Berman about today is his most recent book, Why America Failed. And that's the third book in his America trilogy, which started with Twilight of American Culture and then followed up by Dark Ages America. And then now the most recent one, Why America Failed, where he traces the failure of American culture and American ideology all the way back to its roots because it was all of these people who moved over here from Europe who were the people who were looking to make a buck. And he goes into much more detail about why and how it played out. But essentially, his core point is that all the myths that American society is built on have spread around the world and have also integrated into other cultures. And so even though it's the American core that is failing, the periphery, the other places, may even fail faster. I know you were in Spain at the time of this recording, Seth, and what was it like to be in Spain and see so much influence of American culture there in another country? I was in Spain, and every time I'm in Europe, I kind of you can always find the Americans just based on the way they're speaking. But this time around, I could really see the American culture just permeating everywhere in Spain. So I saw incredible capitalistic Christmas going on all around me, McDonald's and Starbucks everywhere I looked, and you know just the the incorporation of of so many different American TV shows and all sorts of American fashion there as well. It was very poignant that I was there at that time when I was having this conversation with with Morris, so that I could actually illustrate some of the things from that of an American, maybe a more of an American in Europe kind of perspective. It made me feel a little bit sad to be American there in Europe, as American culture has kind of crept across the the land and across the world. It's kind of a sad thing to see, and and sometimes. I I feel a little bit bad that American culture has just 
taken over these ancient, ancient cultures that have been around for so many, many years. And it makes me a little bit sad on the inside. What do you feel, Justin, living in Canada? Do you see a lot of American culture in Canada? Well, absolutely. The only difference between a Canadian and an American is that a Canadian is an American without the gun, is what I always hear. It's a lot like the United States here, but it's just slightly different, maybe slightly nicer. And one of the things that I realized when I was in Europe earlier uh, in 2011 was just how embarrassing it is sometimes to meet other Americans traveling. And I was staying in a hostel in Marseille, France, and I was sitting there in my room and right outside the door the whole night, starting at 11 p.m., there was this guy there from Georgia and he was talking about how proud he was to be a redneck and how his favorite beer was Bud Light. And he was sitting around with all of these German guys and he was talking about how he would drink so much he would just pass out drunk in, in on the street. And he was describing tailgating to them when he would go to a Georgia Bulldogs football game and tailgate. And he was saying, you know, like people would drive their big trucks in and put their grills out on the truck and, you know, just get really, really drunk before the football game. And then he some girls started yelling outside the window to him, like, shut up. We're trying to sleep. It's two in the morning and you're being unbelievably loud and keeping everyone in the hostel up. And he was like, why don't you come down here, sweetie? And oh, man, it was so awful. It just it made. <laughs> Made me so embarrassed. You know, we are pretty mean to Americans. We're pretty hard on Americans on this show. And that is because we're both Americans and we lived within this culture for so long. Well, and one of the things I read in one of John Michael Greer's recent books is, you know, he takes kind of the whole criticism of the United States and he says, post World War II, like imagine if Japan or imagine if Germany had become the world superpower, you know, what would it be like? And yes, there are so many horrible negative things about the way that the United States empire exists on this globe. But, um, you know, in other ways, it's like, what are the trade-offs? Yeah, Justin, it would be kind of crazy if, you know, Germany would have won that World War II. You know, we'd have Hitler spreading fascism all over the world. That would have been a very drastically different place. So I suppose America coming out on top of World War II was probably was the best of any of the possible scenarios that could have happened. We're headed towards an age where there won't be superpowers, for better or for worse. And there will still be powers. But what that means is that there's going to be more pluralism. And, and so we're going to find out what that means here on this planet. But for now, we're going to find out what Morris Berman has to say. And so let's take it away. So we'll start out by taking the title of the book, uh, Why America Failed. Why did America fail? And who's willing to ask themselves such a question in our culture today? Because for some reason, the United States has such a hard time with cultural reflection. It really does. In fact, one of the greatest reflectors, so to speak, on uh, the American psyche, uh, American history, and the forces that have propelled the United States in the direction it has gone, is a Canadian. I'm referring to Sack Van Berkovich, who taught American studies at Harvard for decades and wrote books like The Puritan Origins of the American Self, and whose insight as an outsider, his insight into American psychological behavior is second to none. In fact, at one point, he said, it took me a while to adjust. It was almost as though I were observing the people who were insane. And I would agree with him. 
that's my verdict as well. So, but it's easier to see if you're coming from the outside, entering, and you see all these people mouthing these slogans. I talk about that in particular in one essay in a collection of essays I did called A Question of Values I posted about a year ago. And there's one essay called Conspiracy versus Conspiracy in American History, in which I talk about the unconscious programming that has led Americans to behave, think, and act the way they do. And it's, it's unconscious programming like the belief that we're the chosen people or that there's an endless frontier and uh, we can operate on the basis of infinite resources, despite you know, the obvious fact that we can't. But that's still going on right now in the United States, that belief. And so Berkovich was really good, I think, at scoring the religious basis of this kind of unconscious programming, the belief that we are the chosen people, and that the history of the United States was, from the early 16th century, uh, seen as the unfolding of God's will on earth. And a lot of Americans still believe that, even ones who are secular and say they don't believe it. As a result of which, it is almost impossible to criticize the United States to Americans in, any, in any, anything but a more than extremely mild sort of way. They cannot tolerate it because the civil religion itself is the United States, regardless of a person is Protestant, Jewish, or whatever. The civil religion is the United States, and you know what happens if you attack somebody's religion. So there is a Manichaean structure of inside all good, outside all bad. We might make exceptions here and there, for example, for Canadians. But by and large, the outside world is evil, the inside world is good, and that's how Americans operate. Alexis de Tocqueville recognized this as early as 1831. He said, Americans are in a perpetual state of self-adoration. And the minute that you suggest any kind of criticism, make any kind of criticism whatsoever, they get very fierce and very angry. This is 1831. It's worse now, of course nearly 200 years later than it was then. So that's some of the background that I would give you about the difficulty of criticizing the United States and as a result, the difficulty of any real change taking place. I say this over and over again, it's simply not going to happen. It's not merely the, the government or institutions. It's the average guy, the average man or woman just walking around the streets. I mean, they can be unemployed. They can have their house foreclosed on. They can be living in a gutter. But these 10 cities fly an American flag over them, and they still believe that. You mentioned the unconscious programming and the uh, perpetual state of self-adoration that Americans have. And I think it's really interesting about the fact that so much bad media and bad cultural values come out of this, of this country, out of, the, out of the American country, and it influences the whole world. I'm staying in Spain right now, and many of my friends love watching American television. I look outside, and everybody is shopping for Christmas. I see Santa Claus in the window. I see McDonald's on the side of the road, and I see Starbucks where it's packed. And you ask anybody, and everyone will say that American stuff is the best. American cultural icons and media stuff is the best, aside from, you know, olive oil in Spain and, and you know, the, the few specific things that each country makes. Why do you think that it's, American culture and values permeates the whole world in the way it does? That's a very important question. That's an extremely important question. Just to add to that list, a few months ago I read something that I thought was both horrible and hilarious. The number one television show in Gaza Strip, in Gaza, the number one television show is Friends. 
you know, the American sitcoms. Yeah, so and it's, they, people, they play that here in, in Spain as well. It's, it's, it's amazing. They, they, well, they laugh. And, right, but I don't, expect, I don't expect Palestinians to sit around thinking that some American sitcom is great, and yet they do. Spain, I can understand. Europe, I can understand. But Gaza? Give me a break. Why would, I mean, here you have the Palestinians who loathe American politics, the government. After all, it's oppressing them. It's giving $3 billion a year to Israel to, you know, for materiel and make sure that the thumb remains on, you know, on the back of the neck of the Palestinians. Why would they? But they do. And there, there you have it. And there are a number of ways of answering that question, which I think is a really good one. One being that soft power is much more powerful than hard power. Even though the United States government doesn't quite grasp that, it's still very foolish. I mean, it, you know, I mean, this recent business of putting a, a military base in Australia to rattle sabers at China, you couldn't do a more stupid thing than that. So hard power is the thing that the government, the military, they all love that. But it backfires. That's what blowback is. It doesn't work out very well. There's retaliation against it. It's a very stupid thing to do. Whereas soft power, ah, that's a different story. Rather than blowback, there's an enormous embrace. Soft power is Walt Disney, Jeans, Christmas, Consumer Society, Friends, and all that sort of stuff. And the world absolutely loves it, not realizing that they're taking in a poison that's killing them, and they take it in. They do take it in quite eagerly. Explanations for this, you know, frankly, the best I ran across is by the Chilean writer. He lives in the United States now, but he was born and raised in Chile and left when, the, uh, when Allende was killed. It's Ariel Dorfman, who teaches at Duke University. Dorfman wrote a book, The Empire Has No Clothes, something like that. It was about 1983, where he wrote a book, and towards the end, he talked about the fact that there's this enormous embrace of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all the sorts of things that the United States produces. And he said the reason is transcultural and even biological. It's that there is an enormous human identification with the child within us to have fun, to celebrate the child, to protect the child. And Americans play that chord extremely well. Certainly Walt Disney understood it extremely well. And so the embrace is almost a biological one. I would extend it to things like iPhones and smartphones and all these cell phone applications and Blackberries and iPads. The idea of having toys. I mean, America is to me a very infantile culture. It never really grew up. It's not even adolescent. Well, it is in some ways, but it's largely an infantile culture. And the idea of creating toys, I mean, even when you listen to people like Bill Gates, here's an adult saying, we've got a lot of neat stuff. Who talks like that? Children talk like that. And that's what Americans want. They want neat stuff. But Dorfman was right in saying that on a biological level, everybody wants neat stuff. It just appeals to the child within us, and that is a archetypal, if you will, almost a Jungian category. It's a, it's a transcultural kind of thing. And American corporations know, certainly Disney did, but other corporations as well, know how to manipulate, know how to pluck their cord, and they can go in. And now there are iPads designed for infants seven days old. It's, in fact, it was a Canadian company. I read about it recently, and I can't remember the name. But it, it was called Vinci, V-I-N-C-I. And it's an iPad for infants seven days old. That's how early corporations want to hook children into staying children all their lives. 
And so I think seven that months old. Extreme, That's seven seven days. Seven days. At seven days of age, the newborn wow. is now fiddling around with an iPad. And the company, the, the device is called Vinci, and I can't remember, it's a Canadian company, and I remember reading about it in American newspapers, there's a whole article about it, and I can't remember the name of the company, it's a woman who runs it, and she was very excited, and, and she talked in corporate terms, we're leveraging this, you know, and you know, this is mental illness to the max, so toddlers now have iPads, cell phones, and are taking Prozac. You know, they're armed for the new life. What a great way to live. You know, I mean, it's the end of the human being. It is Brave New World. And um, Yeah, I was just going to say, it's just like Soma, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So if you stay an infant all your life, this is what it looks like. And I, I think Dorfman hit something very important. This goes beyond any kind of Marxist analysis of corporate control and all this sort of thing. That's there, but the corporations know how to pluck that string and how to move in and invade the mind of the infant and to keep to keep Americans and, for that matter, Canadians and, to a great extent, Mexicans, children for life. So we've been talking about the juvenile aspects of American culture, and we live in this time of economic collapse and decline, and we see financial crises all over the world. And more than anything else, the United States has been a country of endless economic growth. That's been the philosophy. And in speaking about the juvenile nature, it's really interesting that you brought that up because in the biological development of any being, growth is the development phase, the juvenile phase in the life cycle of of any one organism. So not only are we juvenile in the way that we appeal to the juvenile around the world, but our economic philosophy does the same. Where did our economic philosophy start in the history of the United States and, and really has it been with us throughout our entire history since everyone from Europe started coming over to this new world? Oh, another good question. Of course, there are differences with Canada. Uh, at the time of the revolution, loyalists left. You know, they went north. There's a good book by Maya Jasonoff, actually, called Liberty's Exiles, that I would recommend to our listeners, that talks about the Americans that didn't agree with the separation from England and what happened to them. And perhaps, you know, in that way, one can learn about a slight difference in any case. It's not large anymore, but a slight difference in value systems between uh, Canada, the U.S., U.S. and Mexico, and so on, and maybe, you know, the U.S. and Europe. But I would argue that the decline was embedded in the rise, and this is the dialectical part of the whole argument. Many years ago, an historian named Lewis Hartz, and this was in 1955, did a book called The Liberal Tradition in America. Now, liberal here does not mean that word as it usually is tossed around. That is to say, politically leftward or something like that. It means that on, in a political colloquial sense. But strictly speaking, the word liberal means conservative. That is to say, liberal always meant 19th century British economics, John Stuart Mill, Ricardo, and so on. This was the liberal tradition. The liberal tradition in America, said Hartz, is that we were capitalists from the get-go, from the very earliest point, and it came about because there are a number of societies or nations, he said, on the planet that are what he calls fragment societies. That is to say, they broke off from a mother culture, in the case of England, in the case of the United States, from England. They broke off from the mother culture, but they didn't take the whole culture. They just took one particular strand of it, and they made it into their entire culture. 
And what the United States was, the particular strand it took, was the British entrepreneurial, middle-class, aggressive, capitalist faction, that strand. That became the whole of the United States. It was covered over with a rhetoric of democracy, some of which had a reality to it, I mean, in the sense of being Republican and anti-monarchical and so on. But, says Hartz, the crux of it, and he's not the only one, a whole list of very good historians have argued this, the crux of it was economic expansion, the acquisition of property and the acquisition of things. And that was what the United States was from the beginning. That created a very lopsided situation because if you're about only one particular thing, your days are really numbered in a certain way. That formula gave the United States immense expansionist power within 100 years of its founding, of the Declaration of Independence, one-third of the products sold in the world were manufactured in the U.S. That's, you know, it's pretty good. But the downside of that is that that's all it was about, and that creates a very lopsided society. You know, I wrote this third volume in the trilogy. It's called Why America Failed, but the original, the working title was Capitalism and Its Discontents. My publisher was not keen on that because, as I like to say, he wanted me to sell more than six books, you know. So he wanted a non-academic title, one that would grab the public attention, like Why America Failed. Okay, so finally, I agreed with that. But Most actually, people wouldn't get the Freud reference? That's right. That's yeah. absolutely right. And it's also the case, for me, it was a better title, even though, you know, I'm, I, I admit it's not a good marketing title. But I like the title because it really said what it was about. What you have in the United States is capitalism, and then you have its discontents. And capitalism, as an ideology, frame of mind, way of life, outweighed the discontents by like, you know, 10,000 to one. The alternative voice in the United States really had, never had much of a chance, whether we're talking, I mean, it goes back quite a ways, it goes back to the, really to the beginning, Captain John Smith in 1616 and the Puritan divines, even John Winthrop to a great extent in 1630 on the Arabella, tracing it down through Folks like Lewis Mumford and Jane Jacobs and Vance Packard and John Kenneth Galbraith and right down to Jimmy Carter, which was the alternative tradition's last stand, really. And it never really had a chance. It was a spiritual and exhortatory kind of position. The only alternative culture in the United States to the hustling world was the American South, which obviously had its own complications and its own dark side being based as it was on slavery. But this is the, the, the truth of the matter is that the alternative tradition never had a voice and doesn't to this day. I mean, for every copy of Why America Failed that's going to sell, these neoliberal writers or Ann Coulter or any of these folks will sell 10,000 copies. The alternative tradition doesn't have a voice. It can't get heard, and it, and it won't. Now, we need to ask, I suppose, what's Occupy Wall Street about? Is it the alternative tradition or is it something else? I'm not entirely certain. But I do know that the chances of it getting anywhere in terms of power, probably slight. And what I would predict is that it will be marginalized, just like the alternative tradition always has been, and maybe float into a situation where it constitutes a uh, sort of permanent rump society, a kind of teach-in, where you can go down to Zuccotti Park, let's say, and you know, hear lectures on various things from the alternative tradition. But that, again, is, is an imitation of Brave New World, where Huxley had those who opted out of the whole 
commercial, technological, consumerist control of life and way of life just lived in sort of like Indian reservations, you know, on the margin and were sort of the detritus of society, in quotes. And while the rest of the society pursued the dominant culture's values. I mean, it's unfortunate in a way, but I'm, of course, glad that Occupy Wall Street occurred. I would love it if their ranks swelled from 20,000 to 200 million. I don't think it's going to happen. And in speaking about the dominant culture and building this alternative culture, you mentioned your your essay in regards to conspiracy. And there's so many people who just say we either have to take on the Bilderbergs or the Illuminati or whoever's controlling society. And is that the case? I mean, are there these dark forces out there controlling everything? Are they part of a master plan or is it something else? Well, I don't buy that myself. I mean, that that's a very old kind of theory, and it always exists. I mean, you know, going back to the protocols of the Elders of Zion, if not before. I mean, there are there are people walking around the United States believing that, you know, the Jews are manipulating everything from some basement in a synagogue. Uh, there are groups and there are collusions, but that it's all being controlled by, you know, one cabal. That strikes me as being very unlikely. What I talk about in that essay, conspiracy versus conspiracy, is that we don't really have a conspiracy of elites for the most part. It does happen once in a while, but we don't have a conspiracy of elites so much in the sense of people getting together in a boardroom, rolling up their sleeves and saying, how can we get control of the whole country? How can the six of us get control of the whole country and screw everybody else? What it's more like, and this follows the line of C. Wright Mills and the power elite, he pegged it very well. He said, you know, it's more social. These people meet at the same, on the golf course, they meet at the same country clubs. They take cruises together, and they are on the boards of the same uh, newspapers and media, and that's how they run into each other, and they discover that this person is the same class as I am, this person has the same values, and so they make deals. I mean, well, you know, it's just basically self-interest, and that's how politics works. But the, the funny thing is, the thing that is ironic about the whole thing, the net effect is the same as if it were a cabal meeting in a boardroom, rolling up their sleeves and saying, how can we get control of the whole country? Because that's what's happened. And so what Mill said was, it doesn't really work that way, except the outcome is that. You know, that's what we have to deal with, as though that were true. Well, it makes, obviously, it makes it harder because the enemy is everywhere in that sense. What are you going to run around the golf courses and country clubs? And, you know, I mean, you can go down to Wall Street and you can, you know, try to drag those people out into the street and ship them off to the hog, to the world court to be tried as financial terrorists. I think that would be a great outcome. But um, it's not likely. And in any case, that's not the whole locus of the thing. You know, Lloyd Blankfein and John Corzine and so on, they're like heads on a hydra. It spreads everywhere. So I think it's larger than a, you know, a Bilderberg group or something like that. But, you know, who knows what the reality is? We're not going to know for certain. So moving back in time a little bit, could you maybe explain to us a little bit about what the early 1800s in America was like? And do you have any insight that might be able to tell us what life was like back then? Well... You know, as I said, starting from the late 16th century when the continent was first being colonized, it was colonized by that fragment of the British middle class that saw it as real estate. And basically the chartered companies that came over in the Virginia Commonwealth and so on were chartered British 
corporations. And so this was the goal. It was that this was going to be a field day for economic expansion, and it was. And so this was going on from something like 1584 and onward. It only was really heightened during the War of Independence, the uh, American Revolution. In fact, John Adams wrote in his diary, I never saw such an avaricious people in my whole life. This was in the middle of the revolution where you had all this ideological and idealistic stuff about republicanism and democracy and so on, which I said was real on one hand and was a cover on the other hand. So by the time things settle in, let's take the year 1800. It's a very interesting one. Jefferson ran for president and won. One thing he used, he used literature of a British authorship that talked about consumers forming the nation. And this was what the nation was supposed to be about. So one can see Jefferson, and I think correctly so, in an agrarian light. And yet at the same time, for him, the Jeffersonian Republicans were about making money and accumulating property. I think he had something like 150 slaves when he died, and he didn't free them. I mean, they were inherited. They were passed on as property in his will to his progeny. So you have a situation in which this kind of go-getting capitalism is the dominant theme all the time and also with technological innovation. After all, shortly after 1800, you have the start of the building of the Erie Canal, the network, the canal network that spreads across the United States, and then, of course, the railroad network that spreads across the United States, and then the electrical grid, and so on and so forth. Finally, in the early 20th century, the rise of vast houses of brokering and department stores like Macy's and Fields. It was an ever-expanding type of thing, which has its own type of marvelous power. You know, it's just, as I said, that dialectically, it's going to catch up with you eventually. And it does, because in order to keep those markets going, you need foreign markets. And for that, you need an army. And for that, you need control of other nations, even if it's directly imperialistic or an economic type of imperialism. And sooner or later, you know what? They're going to get pissed off. They're going to strike back, which is what happened on 9-11. Or the system is going to start to implode, as happened in 1929 and in 2008, and this is, 2008 is not the last implosion. And 9-11 is not going to be the last attack because basically the United States, you know, when you set yourself up, Kissinger said it, when you set yourself up as a hegemon and you have to control everything, you know what? People don't like it and they're going to strike back. And finally, I would estimate by 2025, which is only 14 years away, United States is going to look very different. It's going to look very second class and kind of irrelevant or getting there on a world scale. Of a friend. I'm 
we are following the trajectory of all empires, which is that they expand beyond their capacity to sustain themselves. We have run up the largest deficits in human history, which in the bottom line is we can't repay it. We have done so at the cost of our infrastructure, our public education, our working class. We're hollowing the country out from the inside, and the physical evidence is all around us plunging roughly one-third of Americans into poverty or near poverty, according to the latest statistics. Uh, our bridges, our roads are collapsing, uh, libraries are being closed, fire stations are being closed. These are the signs of a nation, uh, or let's call it an empire, uh, that uh, is reaching a kind of uh, a terminal point. And if we don't radically rechart our course, then the collapse is going to be very frightening and very chaotic. These are challenging and important times for America. We want and deserve solutions. We can regain the world's respect by standing strong again, being true to our faith, and respecting one another. Detroit's been ravaged by industrial decline, unemployment, and crime. Property prices have crashed, and the population of Detroit has simply collapsed. Sometimes I get discouraged and I get weary, and I tell my husband, let's get out of here. <laughs> But then I think about it, I think we ordained to stay because how the kids come to us, how they open up to us, I think that God placed us here to do a work. And the work they do is to provide food, shelter and real-world counselling in an area where poverty, drug dealing and violence are often a way of life. It's a domino effect, basically. No jobs, they pick the gun up. Um, no guidance, you run wild. Man, it's just so hard out here, man. Like, you are you really, it's so hard, like, you wouldn't even know which way to step to go to the right direction. I believe the American people are overtaxed and the government is overfed. I believe we're spending too much money and that's got to stop. We face attack from jihadists. We face tougher competition than we've ever known before coming from Asia. We're spending too much money here. Not living in poverty, but not making it either many too ashamed to show their face. We met this young mother at a New Jersey food pantry she used to donate to. But today, she came for help. Why did I meet you here today? Five kids, one bag of chicken left in the house, and it's only four pieces in there. She's not even 30, a mother of three and helping take care of two other children. Her job, she says, a victim of downsizing. But it wasn't always this way. 2009, for you, life, life was good. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was great, you know, three cars, house, kids, kids had whatever they needed. Did you ever think that you would be living with your three kids in a shelter? No. I, had, I never thought in a million years that I would be at this point this bad. I was working, the money that I was making, was able, I was able to pay my bills, the pay rent, rent. Um, be able to have excess things and enjoy life until I got laid off from my job. Nearly one in two Americans is now living on the lower end of the income scale. For a family of four, that's less than $45,000 a year. And have people hit the end of their rope? I think so, their resources are gone. The recession may be over, but it doesn't feel that way. 2011 was the busiest year in the 35-year history of the Center for Food Action. Thank you very much. You're welcome. We're seeing a tremendous increase, and much of that increase has to do with people that 
never, ever thought that they were going to need so to come to an emergency line, center. People that, class, people that were middle class, people that were middle class, people that were donors, people that always thought that they were on the giving side are suddenly finding themselves needing help. I think what we're seeing is that the middle class is going away. I'm nervous for a lot of people. Families that do have educations and had decent jobs are now being laid off. These are the families that are stuck in the middle, Exactly. They? they fall through the cracks. And there's a lot of them. There are a lot of them. But that's the frightening part. Never thought I'd be here. I don't know why I have to go through this. I believe in the people of America. Free American people are the source of this land's great strength. And Mitt has a detailed plan to turn around America's economy. Mitt Romney. What if the two-party system was actually a mechanism used to limit so-called public opinion? What if there were more than two sides to every issue, but the two parties wanted to box you into a corner, one of their corners? What if there's no such thing as public opinion, because every thinking person has opinions that are uniquely his own? What if what we call public opinion was just a manufactured narrative that makes it easier to convince people that if their views are different, then there's something wrong with that or there's something wrong with them? What if the widely perceived differences between the two parties was just an illusion? What if the heart of the government policy remains the same no matter who's in the White House? What if the heart of government policy remains the same no matter what the people want? What if those vaunted differences between Democrat and Republican were actually just minor disagreements? Restore Our Future Inc. is responsible for the content of this message. I'm Newt Gingrich, and I approve this message. I'm Mitt Romney. I'm running for president, and I approve this message. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, episode number 34, and today we're speaking with Morris Berman about why America failed. So given what you said about swindling and hustling as part of American life and American values for a very long time, why is it that everyone acts so surprised when Goldman Sachs screws us over and when you know people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates make a fortune and we all look at those people and want to be them instead of criticizing them for amassing so much wealth? Why, why are we so surprised when it happens? I always come back to a remark that, you know, the great American writer John Steinbeck made. He said that in the United States, poor people regard themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. <laughs> in other words, you know, that, I mean, they just see themselves on the road to becoming Bill Gates. The fact that this is a hallucination, a delusion of the first order, never even enters their minds. After all, Americans are raised on variants of Horatio Alger. You know, the, the famous Horatio Alger stories, especially around the early 20th century, where they're stories of the self-made man. The statistics are that most Americans die in the class into which they were born, and that most of the wealth is long-term wealth. It's not like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. Those are the exceptions, or Oprah Winfrey. Those are the exceptions that are always held up. 
anybody can make it. But in fact, anybody can't make it. It really is an accidental type of thing. However, the ideology in the United States is extremely powerful in that regard. And most Americans have it. If you work hard enough, everything will work out. They even believe it in the midst of living in a tent city, having their house foreclosed on, uh, having no money at all, no job, and no prospect of a job, economists now tell us, for about 10 years. They still believe it. They are temporarily embarrassed millionaires, as Steinbeck said. When Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs gave himself a bonus a year ago of about $9 million, President Obama said, well, most Americans don't begrudge him that money. After all, that's how capitalism works. That's how free enterprise works. And most Americans you know, would like to be in the same position. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. It's not that most Americans look at Blankfein or a character like Bill Gates, who at one point had $50 billion in the bank, or a character like Steve Jobs, who died with $8 billion, and say any system that allows one person to amass that much wealth at the expense of everybody else is perverse. They don't say that at all. They say, how can I get a cut of that pie? How can I become Steve Jobs? How can I invent some pet rock or some piece of junk that's going to make it for me? That's where their attention is. They want to be blank fine and Gates and so on. And greed is start, doesn't start with Ronald Reagan in 1981. Greed starts with these real estate promotional tracts published in England in 1584 saying, go over there and get your cut. That's where greed starts. And that's the 400 plus years history of the United States. And we have those we have those examples of the Horatio Alger stories that paint the picture of a world where if you work hard enough and pull yourself up by your bootstraps that you really can make it and you follow the formula and you work hard enough and everything will work out and there's so many people working incredibly hard at such useless things and do you think that that work ethic that American work ethic to try and try and try and never give up will break down as, as more US citizens realize that breaking out of that class stagnation or that cultural box that they've been sold is really not going to happen and, and they're just going to continue to live in the same way that they have for so long yeah I think they're going to continue again it's a question of how would we translate or decode what's going on with Occupy Wall Street. I could be wrong about this. I haven't been to Zuccotti Park. I haven't talked to the people there, and I could be way off base here. My impression from online uh, news reports and coverage, including from very sympathetic and left-wing websites, for example, is that protesters in Zuccotti Park are not protesting the American dream. They're protesting an American dream that's poorly distributed. In other words, the position is largely socialist. It's that the country is not fair. It needs to distribute the wealth more evenly so that they always say 1%, 99%, but actually the figures are 190. That is to say, the top 1% in collective wealth hold more than the bottom 90% in collective wealth. Um, so they want to redistribute it. They want a fairer system. That seems to be the goal. I don't pick up very much online along the lines of, but there's something wrong with the American dream itself. If there's something wrong with the whole narrative of American history. In fact, most Americans don't even know what a narrative is, let alone know what the narrative of America is. Sackland Berkovich understood it, wrote a lot about it. How many Americans do you think read Sackland Berkovich? Furthermore, Americans are not very bright. I have to say it. 
if you would stop a typical American on the street and you would say, can you define the word narrative? Can you say what a narrative is? I would guess that one out of a thousand would be able to say, well, it's, it's kind of a collective myth or a story that guides the behavior or course of history or understanding of the people and so on. I don't know about Canada, but my guess is in France, 99 out of 100 would be able to say, c'est quoi un narrative? Oh, oui, oui, c'est ça. C'est une histoire, blah, blah. You can, you, can, you can bet that the French understand what a narrative is. Probably the Germans and Italians as well. Americans are not very bright. They don't think in these terms. What they do is they live inside the narrative, which means that you can never correct the narrative. That's why you have tent cities flying the American flag. It's not that the people in the tent cities are saying, oh, there's something wrong entirely in its conception with the American dream. No, no, it's I didn't get my share of the American dream, and that's what I want now. Now, I suspect that's what the Wall Street protesters are saying, that it's an issue of distribution. It's not for them that it's an issue of actual conception. Because, you know, when you think about it, one of these unconscious programs or narratives that I'm talking about in that essay I mentioned in the question of values was that of the endless frontier, that we will never run out of resources, energy, or whatever it is. And in fact, that's quite nuts. That would be a philosophy that's based on infinity, which doesn't exist in the real world. But Americans believe it exists. And they'll stay within that narrative. They'll stay inside of it. You know, I remember years ago, it was quite an, it was the only time I run across this. I was staying in Utah for a while and I met a woman. She wasn't a Mormon, but whatever. I, I met this woman who uh, was working for IBM, setting up mainframes for large institutions like hospitals. And uh, I said, how do you like your work? She said, it's okay. I mean, it, there's nothing splendid about it, but it pays very well and so on. And I got to know her, it turned out that she had gotten a bachelor's degree from some major university in the Northeast in urban anthropology and had done an undergraduate honors thesis on the urban anthropology of some African city or something like that. And she said, you know, when I finished that work, I saw through the myth of the United States. You can't study anthropology without, you know, first you study the myths of other countries and finally it occurs to you, well, what are ours? What are our narratives? And I saw what it was, and I saw the mythology of the United States, and I made a decision not to think about it anymore. In fact, this is the first time I've thought about it since I got my bachelor's degree. I just went to work for IBM. I realized that the choice was to live the myth or to live outside it and analyze it, and I decided to live within the myth. It was sort of like a postmodern conversation. It was the most incredible conversation I had had up to that point. Certainly, I'd never run into anybody who said, I saw through it, and I decided to go back to sleep because wow. that would be better for my life. It was incredible to me that anybody who saw through it could then make that decision. But, you know, Joan or whatever her name was, I can't remember, was an extremely unusual character. Most Americans don't get to the point. They don't study anthropology. They don't live anywhere else. Only 12% of Americans have a passport. Only 12% travel outside the country, Canada and Mexico accepted. They don't know what other cultures are like, and they don't know there are other possibilities. And so they live entirely within a kind of sphere that's lined with mirror material on the inside where everything reflects back into them and says the same thing over and over again, and they can't break out of it. It's like that movie, The Matrix. That's what the United States is. It's a large hologram in which nobody... Fresh air doesn't really enter here, and 
most people don't get to the point of saying what is the narrative because they can't even formulate the question in the United States. In that sense, this has to be one of the most successful political formations <laughs> in the history of the world because basically, no matter how badly the government screws up, the people still say, we're number one. <laughs> Absolutely. And you mentioned tent cities flying the American flag and, and the American myth of the infinite frontier now being crushed by physical reality. You know, we're running up against hard limits, the limits to growth that have been talked about uh, for over 40 years now. And uh, essentially, the American dream for many is becoming the American nightmare. And you would hope that as things deteriorate, people would look back through history and find, you know, alternatives that have existed not only in the United States, but around the world and start embracing those in their lives. But yet, why is it that the people who were opposed to luxury in the United States, who really wanted the simple life, were so heavily marginalized throughout American history? Are, are there any solid alternative movements inside the United States that we can turn to and say, you know, they had something that was of value and we can adapt that to our situation now? The only exception that had clout was the American South. That is to say, you have Emerson and Thoreau and Lewis Mumford and so on, but they're just regarded as cranks or as quaint, you know. I mean, Herman Melville, which is a theme in my book, Why America Failed, Herman Melville really understood, and if only in an unconscious way, I really don't know how aware of it he was, but the story of the ship, the Pequod, being smashed to pieces by the whale, was, in, was the narrative of the United States, that if you continue to pursue this laissez-faire technological economics in this monomaniacal way, like Ahab did, you can only come to ruin. And that's the story, you know. So in terms of what happened to alternatives, the only alternative, I mean, Melville's book didn't sell, Moby Dick didn't sell. He uh, was a you know, he had to make a living as a customs official, and he died in relative obscurity. He was the greatest writer America ever produced. But this is the, the problem that it was all exhortatory. You know, Lewis Mumford, you read him today, he's right on target. Also, most Americans would just laugh, you know. So what do we have? The only alternative tradition that was opposed to the hustling life and bitterly opposed to it was the American South. And it was the only alternative tradition that had guns, that had the military might to say, you're not putting us there. We're not going to that place. You're not going to do a northern makeover of the South. And they went to war over it and had the, had the capability of doing it. Of course, the dark shadow is the whole thing that the economy was based on slavery. And, you know, is that any better? I mean, obviously, it had to go by 1861. It had to go. And so that war that cost over 600,000 lives had to be fought. And that's the great tragedy, I think, of American history, because not only the loss of that life, but the loss of a way of life. Because if you look at the South and subtract slavery, just for a moment, just for a moment, put it aside, you say, hey, everybody should have this way of life. This was, in fact, in 1860, again, slavery accepted, the dominant pattern throughout the world. It wasn't a North American or Northern European hustling way of life. That was the minority tradition. The great American historian, Southern historian, C. Van Woodward, uh, said that in essays he wrote in the 1950s. 
he said, really, it wasn't the South that was peculiar on a world scale. It was the North. Most nations of the world weren't into hustling and weren't into that highly expansionist way of life. This was something that then, when the South was crushed, since the South was associated with slavery, and this is the worst thing in the world, and it is brutal, but the problem is that what they were talking about as a way of life got lost. And there were some pretty humane values. In, the, in humanity, there were some pretty humane values. It makes the history of the United States, and especially the Civil War, kind of maddening. Because as, as I say in the chapter of why America failed on the Civil War, it's paradoxical and almost crazy-making that the best of the South and the worst of the South were tied together at the root. And we can separate it theoretically, but in terms of how it played out, of course we can't. And so we are then left with, as the historian Eugene Genovese said about the South and what happened, as a result of that, we are left with a world that can be characterized as affluent depravity. What are we living for? It's just for more. It's the hustling world. It's just the huge wealth of the top tenth of one percent taking over the globe. This is affluent depravity. This is, in a sense, almost as bad as slavery. That's what we wound up with. Ironically enough, the victory of the North opened the door to the American imperial program and the enslavement of millions of people around the world to America and to that way of life. So this is the kind of paradox that history, unfortunately, is made of. So you're saying now we did away with legally enforced slavery and have wound up with wage slavery in a way? Yeah, I mean, that's what happened. You know, in 1859, Lincoln, who you know had his eye on the presidency and, and was a you know major figure in the American scene by then, said that 60% of the American workforce was self-employed and that that was the course of events. You started off working for somebody else, and then you became the self-made man, like he said he was. You move up the ranks, you, you start your own company, and you become your own capitalist. And that, that was the vision he had for the United States. His vision was not that of freed slaves. It was a free men, that is to say, people who could become self-made men, capitalists on their own, and so on. But in 1859, when he was saying that, that 60% fell into the category of, of self-employed, we know that's wrong. In fact, it was about 12%. It was about one-eighth of the workforce that was categorized, could be categorized in that way. The rest were working for other people or corporations with no possibility of ever escaping the bad noose. And they didn't. And they don't today. And so when Lincoln was saying this, John Calhoun and other Southerners were saying, you can excoriate our system of slavery, but yours is just wage slavery. It's Now, I would still maintain there's a difference between being a free person and a slave person, regardless of you know how much money you're making or what the conditions are. Uh, it's always better to be free, it seems to me. But the actual material, they were right about the actual material conditions. They were grueling, and we now have, you know, where did Steve Jobs, that everybody adores, get his money from? from 14-year-old Chinese teenagers working 14 hours a day in Shenzhen for 14 cents an hour and beaten and frequently raped and the whole schmear. And you know what? He had controlling interest in that city, in that country, sorry, in that company. 
And he could have done something about it. I mean, he could have changed the working conditions for those people. But no, no, they die at age 30 from being worn out and making peanuts, and he dies with $8 billion. And then, then, it seems to me to the everlasting shame of the American public walking around with candles, you know, near his house on the day he died, or the New Yorker running a cover showing jobs coming up to heaven and the angel Gabriel having an iPad, or the um, general adulation on the part of the Occupy Wall Street protesters when he died. Uh, you know, a moment of silence for Steve Jobs. What are you thinking, for God's sakes? So this is the kind of thing that, you know, I think we're faced with, that this is the world, as Genovese says, of affluent depravity. That's what we got by defeating slavery. I want to go on record as saying I'm not pro-slave. I'm glad the war was fought and slavery was eradicated. This had to be in, you know, in the course of events. But it's not clear that what followed was any kind of liberation for Americans or you know, the Chinese victims in apple factories in Shenzhen. It wasn't. Yeah, and it's sad that one of our biggest exports is technology in the United States and that we do adore people who, who make amazing technological breakthroughs. But we don't really look at that other side of the coin and we don't really see the fact that we have been turned to slaves by technology in a lot of ways. We, we're tethered to our iPhones. I mean, my iPhone is right next to me right now and I've used it all throughout Europe. It got me around without using a map or having to use language skills really at all. It's an amazing invention, but you, you see, like you mentioned, there's a terrible price that we pay for using this technology. The downside, I think, is enormous. The downside. Yeah, is really that's enormous. what I'm saying. There's a, da- a huge downside where you mentioned the, the 14-year-old children in China. Do you think there could be any other culture that could have created an iPhone and the Internet? And what does that mean about for our technological legacy? Well, what does it say about us when people look back you know, 100 years from now and, and see what we've done with the amazing breakthroughs we've made with communication technology and the instant way we can communicate with one another. I mean, like we've said on the, I've said before on the show, this podcast is right now on three different continents or two different continents from three different cities around the world. It's an amazing feat of technology, but incredible consequences that have come from it. And even in its own terms, I'm not that impressed. You know what I mean? Even leaving aside the 14-year-old Chinese girl in Shenzhen, and the issue of of capitalist exploitation. We have to talk about what kind of progress this really is. It's the progress of toys, and it's the progress of what we were talking about earlier that Ariel Dorfman said of infants who who were excited about toys. I don't have the impression that because of the iPod or even the laptop, we're better off. I would say we're a lot worse off. And in fact, there's a very large number of studies that say that screens damage synaptic connections. They rearrange the brain in ways that are unhealthy so that the person becomes very, you know, the attention span of the American college student is about three seconds. It's like that of a gnat. And it's because they've been trained by screens to be constantly moving from one thing to another. It's not the same thing reading a page on an iPad as reading a page in a printed text where you can't go somewhere else every two seconds and you have to sit there and sink into yourself or into the ideas on the page and follow the argument. The average college student can't follow an argument. And in fact, all the statistics are that most don't know the difference between an argument and an opinion. All this damage that's being caused by technology 
what did Steve Jobs really do? I mean, these were design achievements, but why do we need this stuff? I'm simply not convinced that this is a better world for having all of these toys. And, you know, I see it, you know, on airplanes. I remember recently I took a trip and the woman next to me, she couldn't, even when the flight attendant or the pilot announced you cannot use electronic devices and so on, she couldn't stop using it. So the flight attendant would come over and say, you have to put that away now. She would for about a minute, and then she was back. As soon as the flight attendant was gone, she was back to it, you know. And this extreme addictive power. And I remember how sad I talked to her. She was a nurse that was getting some sort of degree. Um, well, she was getting her official nursing degree. She was a, uh, an associate. She was getting a bachelor's in nursing. Amazingly enough, they were. I, I was really surprised at this. For that degree, they were required to take a course in lit lit. British literature. And, you know, she went on and how useless Chaucer and Shakespeare were. And, you know, what a waste of time it was to read and where she could be on her, on her Blackberry. And she was 50 years old. She had no excuse. She couldn't say I'm 17 and I, you know, I've got my iPod up my nose and, and that's all I know. She couldn't say that. And here's a 50 year old woman, a mother, of, you know, several children, already a practicing nurse getting a bachelor's degree and saying to me with a straight face, why would anybody want to read Shakespeare or Chaucer? What a waste of time it is. And I just wanted to hug her and say, you poor thing, what they've done to you, what they've done to you. And she said, Hamlet is depressing. And I said, you know, it's the greatest study of indecision in the history of the world. And Chaucer's portraits of those pilgrims, which incidentally, when I went to college, I had to read in the original Middle English. I can still recite the prologue in Middle English by heart to this day. Here she's reading it in modern English, which to me is a great loss. It's not 14th century English. She's reading it in modern English, but she's not even reading it. She's saying, why would I bother? Well, if you read the portrait of the knight, for example, or the miller, or the nun, you know, who has this erotic side to her, man, Chaucer was really clever. And he understood human psychology. So this woman is training to be a nurse, and she doesn't understand a word of human psychology. Not a word. All she knows is her iPod and the technology that's involved in helping people get well. But you know, a big part of helping people get well, if you're a nurse or a doctor, is knowing something about human beings. And you can't do that if you don't read Chaucer and Shakespeare. That's not going to happen for you. And look at what this culture has done in terms of the sheer destructiveness of what it means to be a human being and substituting for that some kind of toy that I can text message with and think that this is progress and that I'm so hip because I have this little device. That's a really good point, and it's unbelievable to think about the way our higher education system works in the United States and how other countries around the world want to mimic it. First of all, it saddles everybody with debt slavery the rest of their life with $50,000, $60,000 loans. But then it completely devalues the meaning of true education. And so much of it has just become a vocational school where I remember in my experience, I, I went to a university in the U.S. and I remember sitting in a class on indigenous cultures and it was a great class, but all of the people around me were like, what a waste of time. Uh, how is this going to help me in my job? 
And sitting in a classroom with people of that mindset degrades your ability to have some kind of meaningful class discussion. You know, do you have any thoughts on on higher education? Is there any hope for redeeming it? And how do we get people into uh, a way as we move forward through this decline and collapse uh, to a point where they can start valuing the classics again and, and reading things that have meaning? Well, I talk about that to some extent in um, the first book in the series, The Twilight of American Culture, and identify a certain type of person who can see the narrative of the culture and can see through what it's doing and withdraws from it. I call that the NMI, the new monastic individual. I use that phrase because when Rome collapsed, by the 4th century, you had the emergence of monastic orders that withdrew from the larger culture and were designed to preserve the major achievements of Greco-Roman civilization, scribes and monastic libraries and education and so on. So I said that since you can't probably make a revolution in the United States without getting blown to kingdom come, and you might not be able, as I did, to emigrate, what are your choices? And if you see through the narrative and you are part of the the 1% or maybe a tenth of 1% that doesn't want to live the hustling life, what do you do? And that's a kind of inner migration where you withdraw. I mean, you can keep your job and keep doing the things you're doing, but in a sense, you withdraw from the culture and you adopt different values and maybe hook up with people of like-minded sort and form a kind of a monastic community. So that was the only thing I could see, but that is, a, is, again, that's the marginalized people on the edge of Brave New World that Huxley talked about were living in Indian reservations, you know. So they're metaphoric reservations uh, today, but it's a very, very tiny part of the population. After all, if you've got babies that are seven days old already using iPads, this Vinci thing, what are the chances that they're going to grow up and be able to see outside the matrix? I would say it's extremely small, and it's getting smaller every day. And I get emails from students sitting in their classes and saying, I'm afraid to raise my hand and suggest anything else except what's going on in the dominant culture. Because even for the instructor, let alone the students, it's either incomprehensible or it just is greeted with ridicule because there is only one ideology, and that is more the hustling ideology. That's all they know. So, of course, to study native cultures is just to study these quaint, backward sorts of people and never realize that those backward sorts of people, if you redefine progress in a way that's healthy, light years ahead of you, light years ahead of you with your, with your iPods and your iPads and laptops and so on, they had a sense of what human life was about. They didn't have to re even read Chaucer or Shakespeare. They understood human psychology. Well, that's real progress. So I think the chances are extremely small. I mean, we're, we're talking about the tiniest, minutest minority, you know, and when I get these emails, I feel sad for these students. What am I going to tell them, you know, drop out, find something else? And so, I mean, the only thing you can do is to try to find those very few people who get it, who get what you're talking about and band together with them. I frequently say when people write in about what to do, I say, look, you wrote to me because you read this book, whatever it was, Twilight or Dark Ages or Why America Film. Why don't you start a study group with it? Get together 10 people willing to read it. And then after you finish reading the book, start reading the books that I cite in the footnotes. Have an ongoing study group to talk about what the alternative tradition is and how to keep it alive. 
And maybe, maybe, if Occupy Wall Street turns into a kind of permanent teach-in in various cities, maybe that'll be a place where one can go and learn about these sorts of things. But that it would ever take over the dominant culture. What the dominant culture has to do, and I think it will, is crack up. It'll break to pieces from its own inner contradictions. And it's falling apart right now. There will be more 9-11s. There will be more October 2008s. You know, like the last days of Rome. I mean, that's it's going to happen more and more. And finally, finally, I think we'll have the rise, maybe in 30, 40 years, of secessionist movements in the United States. There's already a big one in Vermont, actually, in which uh, it's called the, you know, the Second Vermont Republic. And those folks are saying, we don't want the hustling life. We don't want what the United States uh, has to offer. This is not a spiritual way of life. This is not a healthy way of life. Now, there are not too many people, but they've actually formed a movement in Vermont around those values. And maybe traveling around the United States, one would, or Canada, one would find pockets of that type of, I hate to call it resistance, but it's a, it is an alternative. And as the larger culture smashes to pieces, like the Pequod did, with Moby Dick, those alternatives are going to be more attractive. After all, Ishmael had nowhere else to go. He was the only survivor of the disaster of the Moby Dick and, you know, was just hanging onto a piece of wood or something, floating away from the wreckage, and that was his story. But what if you were a survivor and there were other survivors and you could float away and form groups? Well, perhaps a different future then. message is that 
progress in technology is exponential, not linear. Uh, many, even scientists, assume a linear model. So they'll say, oh, it'll be hundreds of years before we have uh, self-replicating nanotechnology assembly or uh, artificial intelligence. If you really look at the power of exponential growth, you'll see that these things are pretty soon at hand. And information technology is increasingly encompassing all of our lives, from our music to our manufacturing to our biology uh, to our energy to materials. We'll be able to manufacture almost anything we need in the 2020s from information and very inexpensive raw materials using nanotechnology. Uh, these are very powerful technologies. They both empower our promise and our peril. Uh, so we have to have the will to apply them to the right problems. Thank you very much. In some ways, the fact that, that what we're trying to do with technology is find a good home for it. It's a terrible thing to spray DDT on, on cotton fields, but it's a really good thing to use to eliminate millions of cases of death due to malaria in a small village. Our humanity is actually defined by technology. All the things that we think that we really like about humanity is being driven by technology. This is the infinite game. That's what we're talking about. Cultures put in place, uh, I'm sure you've heard this word, a paradigm. And then what fits within the cultural paradigm is uh, accentuated, uh, stressed, and what doesn't fit inside the cultural paradigm is denied, marginalized, argued against. And we live at the end of a thousand-year binge uh, on the philosophical position known as materialism in its many guises. And the basic message of materialism is that the world is what it appears to be, a thing of composed of matter and uh, pretty much confined to its surface. The world is what it appears to be. Now, this on the face of it is a tremendously naive position for approximately 500 years the great era of the triumph of modern science materialism has had its, had the field all to itself and its argument for its preeminence was the beautiful toys that it could create aircraft railroads, global economies, television, spacecraft. But that is, that is a fool's argument for truth. Uh, I mean, that's after all how a medicine show operates, you know. The juggler is so good, the medicine must be even better. Uh, this is not an entirely rational way to proceed. And now, at the end of 500 years, of the practice of rational quote-unquote scientific culture we're literally at the end of our rope uh, reason and uh, science and uh, the practice of unbridled capitalism have not delivered us into an angelic realm quite the contrary they've delivered three percent of us into an angelic realm completely overshadowed by guilt about what's happening to the other 97% of us who are eating it. Uh, it's not a pretty picture, modern 
civilization. Most people in the world today are quite miserable, actually. Uh, they have very little hope. Their religions, their traditional value systems are being eroded by uh, Dallas and Hawaii Five-0, which are on the village television every night. Uh, uh, lifespans are being shortened by pesticides, chemicals, all kinds of things in the environment. And, uh, and there is very little political uh, light on the horizon. So I believe that it's reasonable, looking at this situation, to say that history failed and that the grand dream of Western civilization has in fact Fail. And now we are attempting, with basically a carved wooden oar, to turn a battleship around. And it's a very frustrating undertaking. Uh, the momentum for catastrophe is enormous in this situation. Uh, now, what? But it's not a hundred percent certain that catastrophe is what we're headed for because we are not a hundred percent unconscious there are people struggling to figure out how to control population struggling to figure out how to balance the relationship between the masculine and the feminine uh, struggling to bring uh, amelioration of hunger and disease to various parts of the world so we're in essentially a tragic situation. A tragic situation is a catastrophe when you know it. are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking with Morris Berman about his book, Why America Failed. So we see around the whole world, like you say, the American culture is, and the world culture, this hustling culture is starting to crack up and, and starting to fall away. America is so deeply rooted in the culture of the planet what would the end of America mean for the rest of the world? I look to the European crisis, their economy seems to be just collapsing faster and faster. So in essence, is it really that America is failing? Are we experiencing the collapse of Americanism? Well, it's a good question. You know, the larger picture is that of the world systems analysis folks. I'm thinking of people like Emmanuel Wallerstein and Christopher Chase Dunn. And basically, the, the world system school formulates the notion that capitalism as a world formation, and it is a world formation, began in earnest around 1500 and that it will be over by 2100. In other words, no civilization or way of life is forever. That's very clear historically. And that this, this particular formation, global capitalist formation, had a run of about 600 years. Now, since the late 19th century, the United States has been the cutting edge of that. It's been in the forefront. So what happens there is indicative of what's going to happen elsewhere. And that's why I see the failure of Spain, Greece, and so on, as the results of following or being caught up in the U.S. pattern. In other words, the market economy that the United States forced on other countries then comes to fruition in those countries as a disaster. The U.S. forced Europe, Canada, Mexico, other countries to play by U.S. rules 
and that produced a huge crisis. That's the world systems analysis analysis, so to speak. And one thing that folks like Wallerstein say is that there is a difference between core and periphery. That is to say, the chance of real change is not probably in the core. The job of the core is to self-destruct, and that's what it's doing. But on the periphery, it's possible that there could be more rebellion. Mexico, for example, 80% of its manufactured goods are sold in U.S. markets. The influence of the United States on Mexico is too enormous for Mexico to serve as any kind of counterpoint to the United States. But if you go further away, if you start to spread out to Ecuador, for example, Venezuela, Bolivia, what you'll find is real opposition to the IMF and the World Bank, neoliberalism, and the hustling life. And those countries, uh, because of geographic and economic distance, being on the periphery, do have some clout in terms of opposing this. I mean, the answer to your question really is that by being the core, the, I mean, the United States is imploding from within. The shockwaves are going to be felt around the world, but it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, Rome didn't fall in a day. You know, it wasn't like August 4th, 476 A.D., 2 in the afternoon, Rome falls. You know, we can put it in our history books. It wasn't like that at all. It was a day, there were, there were nodes that punctuated it, like the sack of Rome in 410 by the Vandals. So there are nodes that punctuate it, 9-11, October 2008. These punctuate the process. But the process of capitalism breaking up is a daily one. It's something that goes on every day, and you look around and you see it, and you see the decay of the culture, and that's why I initially wrote The Twilight of American Culture, because by the mid-90s, when everybody was so excited about Clinton and saying, oh, we're making all this money and this prosperity and so on, I saw a culture actually falling apart, and that's why I wrote that book. You had to look for it to see that, despite Clinton's claims, rich were getting richer and poor were getting poorer during his administration. People were getting stupider. You could say more people were in college, but how is it that everywhere I would see street signs or government signs misspelled, you know, on manufactured items, mis misspellings of common words? The culture was getting stupid, more stupid, more violent, and the distance between rich and poor was getting greater. The ability to pay our bills was starting to decline. Imperial overstretch was uh, increasingly a problem and, of course, then expanded dramatically under Bush Jr. All those kinds of things are what we're in the midst of. And Europe, of course, is feeling the shockwaves of that and because of the U.S. market economy has been forced into positions that I don't think it really wanted. It did want a 35-hour work week. It did want two-month vacations. It did want paid maternity leave. In other words, it wanted a healthy life. It didn't want what we have in the United States is work yourself to death so you can die with the most toys. That's the bumper sticker, you know. Why is it that in the United States we have such a difficult time at imagining a different way of living? It's hard to imagine what life would be like for a child that's born now, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the future. You know, media is, is breaking up and failing, and, you know, Jersey Shore is one of the classics on television. What do you really see for someone who's just uh, getting started in their life now, and can they start imagining a new way uh, of existing? Is there a chance for renaissance in the United States? No, not with the United States itself. As I said, I, I think the world systems analysis folks are correct. 
that the core remains the most powerful, and what it's going to do is just continue to implode, but that's not going to be the center of rebellion, I don't believe myself. It might be a place where there's an increasing amount, as the, as the implosion occurs, alternatives become more attractive, people will start reading you know, books like The Twilight and so on, and others, and maybe Lewis Mumford, and say, hey, these people had a point, you know. So, but as I said earlier, it's going to be a very, very small fraction within the core country because the ideology is so powerful, and that's the reason why it's very difficult to imagine an alternative in the United States. It's because that ideology is so powerful. When you're in the matrix, you can't imagine being outside of the matrix. Uh, you have to go somewhere. You have to become an urban anthropologist or live in Bulgaria for a year or something in order to see it or else be very, very astute and, and read the right things, I guess. So this, this is a very small minority. I feel bad for the person born today in the United States. At seven days of age, their parents wanting to, quote, leverage uh, their options. Jesus, what language. Wanting to lever leverage the child's options will put an iPad, this Vinci thing, in its hand at seven days, seven days of age. At age two or three, the child will be on Prozac. You know, stats of that are quite horrendous. What kind of human being will this be? This is a robot. This is a robot. And so I feel sorry for a 50-year-old woman who can't stop using her BlackBerry or iPad on an airplane, even though she's told not to, and says, what a waste, Shakespeare, Chaucer. I mean, I, I feel sorry for a culture that produces such a person. And certainly, I mean, she had no excuses. I said she's 50 years old. But I, I feel really bad for somebody who's five today and probably doesn't have a hope in hell of getting out of the matrix or even knowing there is a matrix, which is step one, incidentally. That's the first step, to know that you're caught up in it. Very, very few will do that. And that, to me, is a very sad uh, thing. It's as bad as being saddled with $100,000 in student loans, for example, when you graduate. All the, the debt is now in the many, many billions in, in terms of student loans. But the real question is, beyond the student loans, what were you learning? What was going on in that class? Most classes don't require you to read more than 40 pages in an entire semester. And then it's largely going to be corporate-directed, you know, the, the type of stuff you're reading. What chance is there of breaking out? Probably very, very little at all. So uh, I don't think uh, there's a whole lot of hope within the core myself. Going back to your earlier point about 12% of Americans traveling from the United States, is there some, an aspect about traveling that helps people to understand world culture better, to understand the cultural narratives that we are taught and that are reinforced throughout our lives? You live in Mexico now. Uh, I'd like to explore a little bit what prompted that and what is it like to be from an expat. You said that the change can't happen in the core. Is this the best strategy for dealing with with American decline and collapse. It's just to get out while we can and try to change from the outside. Well, it's, it's a personal, it was a personal strategy. And, and the, the decision to move to another country, of course, is, has to be for each person a personal decision. But I live in Mexico. I didn't achieve you know, more power to change the United States, but I wouldn't have any within the United States either. I mean, I moved not for that reason. I moved because I had no one to talk to anymore. And that was getting kind of lonely. I mean, everybody I met, they all say the same thing, and they all believe the same thing. And it's like those students that write to me in their emails about being lonely in their classes. 
uh, you know, if I raised an alternative, I was just stared at. It was incomprehensible, or else it was a, the subject of ridicule. Why stick around in that sort of context? And when Americans ask me, do you have any regrets about moving to Mexico? I said, yes, one, that I didn't do it 20 years earlier, because it's a very gracious way of life. Despite everything you will read in American and Canadian newspapers about decapitation, drug wars, kidnapping, and all that, most of that's confined to the borders, you know, the, the drug wars and so on. With the exception of one internal state, Michoacan, most of the drug wars are, are confined to border states. And daily life in Mexico is actually quite relaxed and quite gracious, despite the poverty and all that other thing that goes along with it. There's enormous poverty in the United States right now. Two out of every three individuals in the United States, two-thirds of the country, just live from paycheck to paycheck. And if they have a health crisis or any a car accident or anything, they go under. That, to me, why is that any better than Mexico? I mean, I, I can't see it myself. In terms of a solution, I didn't see it as that I was going to change turning the United States around. Nothing to turn the United States around. So it becomes a question of what you need in your own life. And what I needed was a more relaxed, non-hustling environment and people I could talk to. And I got it. I got it. And so, you know, I, I can now, I have, I have time to think, which I never could in the United States. I mean, I was up at 7 in the morning, shower, get a suit on, out the door, that was my life. I don't want to live like that, you know. And what did I finally accomplish? I had no friends, no community. I had discussions at cocktail parties that were absurd as far as I was concerned. I didn't want to live like that. So, again, it boils down to if you're really into change, what can you do? Directly opposing the core through revolution will just get you wiped out. Emigrating will not change the United States, but it will change your life. There's no question about that. And finally, the life of an NMI, new monastic individual, that we were discussing earlier, if you're going to stay in the core, that seems to me to be the best solution available. I know in my experience growing up in the United States and now living here in Vancouver, despite the problems that Canada and Vancouver have, not being a traditional culture, it has all the same problems of uh, modernization. I have found that there's a lot of kindred spirits here and there's a lot of people I can connect with and talk about with meaningful things. And that's been a really awesome experience. But in some ways, it's even harder now to go back to the United States. And when you're away, Canada is collapsing much much slower than many parts of the United States. And then to go back and see it, it's really shocking. And in some ways, it's almost so shocking, it's like I'm going into a dystopian novel. So in some ways, are, are we living in the United States? Is it entering a dystopia now? I mean, what happens when media and technology begins failing us? And, and where do you really see it headed here in the near term? I think it's going to get quite grim. There are signs already. You know, the... Um McCain-Levin bill, the National Defense, uh, I don't know the exact name of it, that uh, looks like it's going to pass and send it in the House. I think they have to work out a, an agreed bill. Um, I mean, Obama made some noise about vetoing it, but he, this is a spineless person with no principles and no vision whatsoever, so you can be sure he won't veto it. He doesn't want to make people unhappy. It's his major goal in life, apparently. And what that bill says is that anybody that the president arbitrarily names 
as a terrorist, word not defined, can uh, be snapped up off the street, put in a black hole like a Guantanamo, tortured to death, disappeared, basically, with no right of habeas corpus or calling a lawyer or any of that sort of stuff. All you have to do is be named an enemy combatant. I could be named an enemy combatant, and in 10 or 15 years, maybe I will. I mean, maybe talking like this on the radio, writing the books that I do, would be considered a form of intellectual terrorism, and therefore that I would be liable just to be swept up and disappeared, and nobody would know what happened, or, you know, I would just wind up in literally a black hole, being tortured until I die, and that would be the end. That is now on the horizon. This is not an exaggeration. When people in Mexico would say, for when I first came here, is the United States a police state? I would say, well, on paper, but you know, they're not really doing anything. But now they're doing things. Now they're doing things. Uh, this murder of Anwar and Lockie, for example, that happened a couple of months ago. I mean, that was because he supposedly had Al-Qaeda associations and was preaching against the United States. But you know, the U.S. Constitution does say, no matter how heinous the crime, you get your day in court. He never had a day in court. He was just shot. And these people that under this new, you know, Levin, uh, McCain-Levin bill for indefinite detention, um, they're not going to get their day in court. And it's possible that dissident intellectuals in 10 to 15 years will just be swept up in a dragnet move and they won't get their day in court. They'll never be heard from again. We are entering on possibly very, very dangerous times. I just can't see things getting better. I can't see Obama vetoing this bill. Most Americans aren't even aware that the bill exists because most Americans have no real interest in the political process or what's happening in Washington. And furthermore, if they heard about it, they would say, well, I'm not a terrorist, so what's the problem? I don't really care. And this brings us, and maybe this is the way to conclude, to that famous quote from Martin Niemöller, you know, who was Protestant minister that was um, put in a concentration camp by the Nazis, who after the war said, well, you know, first they came for the Jews, but I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for the Catholics, but I wasn't a Catholic, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for the Masons, and so on and so forth. Then they came for me, but by then there was nobody to speak up. And that, I think, may be what we are facing as the years go by. It sounds extreme. Boy, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm really over-the-top paranoid. But when I see the McCain-Levin bill and almost all the Democrats voting for it, you realize what dangerous times we are now in.
And that closes out our interview with Morris Berman on why America failed and American values and why American values have led toward the decline and collapse of the American empire because it was built in from the beginning. And it makes me wonder, Seth, why we are so surprised to see, you know, Goldman Sachs bankers ripping us off, why we see politicians who are in line with corporations. It it sounds like so many things that we criticize about the modern United States have been part of the core values since the beginning. Yeah, and after I finished this interview, I walked out, and I was in Spain at the time, I walked out into the living room with an Australian and four Spanish girls, and I was just like, man, you know only 12% of Americans travel? And they just looked at me like, what are you talking about? I was like, you know only 12% of Americans have left the United States and have their passport and travel around the world. And they were just blown away by that fact. And you know, you think about it, and that kind of explains so much about how Americans act, about why people have such a small view of the world is because nobody ever leaves the country and nobody ever can ever sees what the world is like. They're fed these images of the world via television, via media, and they never really experience what it means to, to go to another country and to live in another culture. And that says so much about this lifestyle that we live in that we can be okay with not ever experiencing the world while we have such huge capacity to travel. One of my least favorite things to do is fly within the United States because there's so many people who are just depressing because I was on a flight from Seattle to Dallas, Texas, and there were these people who were just on the plane and they had these shirts on that said, do you want to see a midget bleed? And they were part of a midget wrestling team. And I was like, one, is there really a midget wrestling team? And two, who wears a do you want to see a midget bleed shirt in public? Like, they, it was two of them. <laughs> Are there any small people wearing these uh, shirts that said, do you want to see a midget bleed? I'm just hoping that their luggage only contained clothing, is all I can say. Yeah, that would but, be unfortunate if they... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> what, what does it say about a culture that people can wear a shirt like that in public? And then I was in Pittsburgh, and I'm getting off the flight and this guy has a shirt on and it has the Home Depot logo and it says the Ho Depot. Who wears corporate logos made up into references to prostitution as like their clothing? That's just really depressing to me. What I thought was really very poignant about what what Morris was saying was how the American culture just appeals to so many people in the world because of its juvenile nature. And the fact that it doesn't matter if you have a a couple thousand years of backstory to your culture, when you see that Minnie Mouse and that Mickey Mouse coming up on stage and Donald Duck quacking along, we we see Aston Kutcher talking with, you know, whoever he's talking to the day, something inside of you wants to be a part of that scene. Something inside of you says, hey, this looks fun. I don't really care about big issues anymore. I want to know about who Kim Kardashian is talking to. I want to see what's happening with the Budweiser frogs. It's it's something that's extremely... (laughs) Hey, don't bring the frogs into this. (laughs) It's something that's extremely juvenile, and but yet it appeals across all different cultures, and it's, it's wild that it does. Yeah, absolutely. And what you were saying when we just uh, jumped out of the conversation with Morris Berman that only 12, 12% of Americans have traveled abroad, it's hard to live outside of the United States and then come back inside because you don't realize when you're living there how fast the culture is decaying because Jared Diamond writes about this in his book Collapse. He uses the term creeping normalcy 
as things are moving along and as things are changing, you're not able to perceive it because to you, you wake up in the morning, you put on your clothes, you get in the car, you go to work, and that's your day. You know, you do your normal things. You know, maybe you have a different routine, but essentially, you just do your normal things, and then you go to sleep at night, and then you wake up and you keep doing it, and you don't perceive the little things that slowly accumulate and add up that lead to the decline and the collapse of a civilization. And when you live outside of the country and you come back inside, then you suddenly see how fast it's decayed. And it's really shocking to see that. And one of my favorite things that I've been seeing recently are a lot of BBC reporters who are going inside the United States and charting the collapse of the civilization. They're talking to people about economic decline and how you know there's all of these people who can't feed themselves. And I recently saw a great, great documentary that I hope everyone somehow finds a way to watch. And it's called American Nomads. And it's about this yeah, guy. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. What did you think about it? Oh, wow. It's it's incredible. That guy that travels around the United States and just talks to all those different people who have cut all roots to their homes and to their culture and have just taken to the road. Which was your favorite character, Justin? Well, I really liked when he met all of the boomers who had retired and just sold their homes and got RVs and would just migrate south for the winter. And there were all those campsites in like Arizona and stuff and like the preacher with his tent and things. But I really liked when he met the kid who was a trained hobo and he was talking to the kid and he buys the guys, he can't be older than like 18, 19, 20. And he's talking to him and the kid is like, you know, this is the second great depression. We're in the second great depression. It's only gonna get worse. There's gonna be more and more trained hobos. There's gonna be more and more dispossessed people from their homes. You know, we talk about these things on our show, but there's a lot of people who are living out this diminished economic reality where they have no other option and maybe they come from broken families because you know their mom can't get a job with benefits and so you know they're working with no health benefits and maybe like you know one of them breaks their arm and they have to declare bankruptcy and they lose their house and kids don't have any other option and so they just go and live in trains and they hitchhike across the country and and another really core point of that film is the guy from the BBC just like walks out into the American wilderness and he's like, you know, I just feel at home here. And then there's some guy rides up on a motorbike and he's like crazy. But one of the things that he started talking about, it was the collapse of the United States. He's like, that was one of the first things he said. And the guy from the BBC didn't really delve into it, but like this guy just starts rambling. And that was like the first thing he said. The feeling you get when traveling is something that's just very different from normal life. That being on the road and being part of nothing and except just the surroundings that you're you're in is very you know very buddhist very living in the moment and that's something that's very seductive and personally i feel that a lot if i'm in one place for too long i feel that urge to get on the road and get moving but then you also feel when you come back to that trying to fit this new rounded person that you've become because you've rubbed up against all these different cultures and you've rubbed up against all these different people and you're no longer that square. You've become uh, some kind of round shape and trying to fit yourself back into that square is something that I find personally very difficult and it, it takes me a little while to get back into that square frame of mind to become that square box again and it's something I find very painful sometimes to, to try to do that. It's like that little boxes song. You go out and you have this experience that rounds out your personality, that rounds out your worldview, that completes some pieces that were missing and then you come back and you have to fit inside that little box that's been created for you that everyone lives inside and it's really hard to do that and you have to sacrifice a piece of who you are to do it. But as long as you can remember that piece that you had before, 
it can still be a part of you as long as you remember it was there. And then you can access that and bring it into your normal life more and more. Uh, sometimes I feel like you can't. And sometimes I feel like people just don't understand that rounded out part of you and they don't want to understand because they've been living in their square boxes and to move their square box to accept your circle means they have to switch a whole bunch of things about their lives. So sometimes it feels like why even go on the on the travel in the first place? Why even go travel around the world and round out your personality because you're just going to have to fit into that square again and it's going to hurt even more the next time. And maybe you're like the lady that uh, Morris Berman was talking about who went and studied cultures in Africa and then saw through the cultural narrative of the United States and then was like, I'm going back into the matrix. You know, I'm just going to go get a job in, where was it, like Utah or something and just like make computers for IBM because I saw through it. That's too scary. So I just want to live inside the matrix. And I wonder how many people there are like that out there. You know, we see so many people inside the structure of society who just don't get critiques of structuralism, who don't get kind of the larger pieces of looking at on a culture and critiquing it. But then there are some people who have seen through it and they're like, that's just too much for me. I want to live in the matrix. That's crazy. It makes you not want to visit outside the matrix again. It makes you want to stay inside the matrix because it, for me, it takes some time to get back used to it and to become a part of the matrix again. And every time I go outside of it, it just becomes that much harder to get back in. It's tough. It's really tough. But there are some people who have been able to leave it forever and have been able to stake their claim on being able to support themselves and being able to forge a path, a unique path in the intellectual venture of our species. And those are the people who we talk to on our show, you know, people like Morris Berman and John Michael Greer and Charles Eisenstein. These are people who are able to look at the overall structure of society and critique it. And they don't have to only talk about what Newt Gingrich said last week about Mitt Romney. And it's so fascinating. Recently, I um, checked the Drudge Report headline on Friday the 13th. And in big print, it was like, Tebow versus Brady, and then a little tiny print up above it. It was massive downgrade of European countries, you know, sovereign <laughs> bonds destroyed. And then underneath it, it was like collapse. Greek talks with banks fall apart, hard to fall in the works. And I was like, that's the small print. The number one thing is Tebow versus Brady. How is that possible? And, you know, it just shows you, like Morris Berman said, he's like, it's a, it's a mirror reflecting in on itself and you just don't see out of it and as long as those lights are on at the Monday night football game and as long as those players are there on the field the vast majority of people aren't going to notice how rapidly their culture is falling apart and unraveling but then again we also have technology that keeps us wired in and helps produce that feeling of normalcy you know how can you really feel that there's something that wrong in the world if you are seeing the football players on the field, just like you always saw. If people are talking about Kim Kardashian and Ashton Kutcher and all that stuff, you know, can the world really be that bad off if that's what everyone's talking about, all of these trivial things? I was, I was talking with a group of people yesterday at, at a restaurant about travel, and that the topic came up, and I started talking about all the places that I've traveled recently and where I've traveled on my study abroad, and pretty much half the table just stopped listening, just got on their iPhones and started just iPhoning away. And I was like, hello, are you listening? They just stopped, they just shut off. They just did not want to hear about anything that was not part of their world, about part of the Jersey Shore reality show world. They just got done with a whole day of shopping and they were 
you know, really content with their their shopping exploits, and they didn't want to hear about anything that's not within their box. So they shut off, and it was extremely rude to me, and it was extremely telling of what it is to live in the in the United States. A lot of times, is that shutdown, that shut off, that blockage of anything that's going to interrupt your worldview. Yeah, and Morris Berman writes and talks a lot about the culture of violence in the United States. And he's not talking about people, you know, shooting each other. He's talking about economic violence, how we've rationalized uh, oppression of so many people through our economic system, but also just the small culture of violence. So many people are just completely rude to each other, sitting at a restaurant booth with another human being. And instead of giving them your full attention, you're staring down at your cell phone and playing with it. And we're all guilty of it sometimes. But if you can't engage that other person and give them at least 100% of your attention, most of the time you're with them, what's the point of even being with another person? You know, can't you just retreat into your Facebook world entirely and live in this digital age? And uh, Morris Berman talked in our conversation today about technology and technology's dark side and about how Steve Jobs is venerated as this hero for the amazing design achievements he's done. But he had a controlling stake in Apple and he knew that there were factories in China that were abusing workers and raping. And it's not an easy thing to talk about and an easy thing to acknowledge. But I think that the modern iPhone and the technology that the United States has produced is the perfect metaphor for what we've achieved as a civilization. It's awesome, it's sexy, it's so easy to use. But that other side is just so dark. It's an absolute rejection of moral achievement. It's the ability to sit there and instead of knowing something, oh, I can just Google it. Instead of interacting with the person in front of you, oh, I'll check Facebook to see what all of my other friends are doing on Facebook instead of interacting with the people they'll look with. And instead of you know having a product that you demand that's made in an ethical, moral way, it's made by slaves. And I was just reading recently about a Foxconn plant in China that makes the Xbox 360. And yeah. there are three, 300 workers who are going to commit suicide if they didn't get a pay raise because they live in these little dorms and they have horrible, miserable lives to make our consumer electronics. And the company even had to install nets outside the window because people would jump and they wanted to catch them. And it comes back to the moral, ethical side of our technology. And the technological achievements are pretty impressive. It's amazing that, that, that the iPhone even exists, but it rests on all of those darker values that we haven't acknowledged. Right now, we have our generation who has lived without iPhones in the past. You know what's going to be very interesting is when we have generations of people who have lived only with technology, like internet-enabled devices, and they start having children. So they no longer have that background of, of a time when there was no internet. But they're, now they're having another generation of people who are going to be that much more removed from the intellectual kind of conversations that you can have in person. They're going to be that much more removed from the kind of conversations that people have face-to-face -face or even over a telephone. They're going to be the social network, Twitter, text message generation that are going to have every interaction is just going to be over some sort of technology. Isn't that going to be wild? That's going to be so crazy. And that just reinforces the matrix. It reinforces the hold that our ideologies and symbols have on us. And, you know, we talk to people like Charles Eisenstein on our show who are just filled with so much hope and people like David McNally who are filled with so much hope. And deep down, I have hope for civilization and humanity as well. But a large part of me agrees with Morris Berman that that hope for humanity is not going to manifest itself in the United States. And I hope I'm wrong. He hopes he's wrong. But the change can really come in the periphery. And we can generate and put these ideas out there. 
but a part of me says, you know, maybe it's not going to be the United States where these things are implemented and, and put together. It's going to be other places in the world. So, you know, history will, will tell the story and, and we'll figure out how it works out. So if you enjoyed this heavy, heavy conversation about the future of America and all the, the wonderful things that we, Justin and I both enjoy about America, and you want to listen to more podcasts where we talk about other such amazing topics, you can do so if you go to our website at extraenvironmentalist.com. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, it, but just typing in Extra Environmentalist and we'll pop right up there. You can go ahead and like us. You can find us on Twitter at X Environmental. You can find us on Stitcher Radio. If, if you don't have an iPhone and you want to follow us on your mobile device, Stitcher Radio is a great place to do that. You can also listen to all of our shows on the website where we have a lower quality fee that we've just instituted. So now if you're in a place with a, a, a cap on your bandwidth, you can now get a lower broadcast quality version of the show yeah and um, we should have done that a long long time ago but thanks to russ for writing in from south africa and telling us that he's really been enjoying the show but that 172 megs which was the size of our most recent episode is too much <laughs> and russ you know what i gotta agree with you 172 megs for a single podcast episode is a hell of a lot of bandwidth to eat up so thank you so much for writing in to us and giving us the motivation to now start posting 96 KBPS episodes. So we're going to have the lower quality download available for you if bandwidth is an issue. So thanks we for also, us. We also have our podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com email address where you can drop us a line. As well as our online voice mailbox, which is 919-701-XTRA, which translates to 9872, or by Skype. Someone tried to call in and leave a Skype voicemail the other day, and I don't think it was working, so I think I have that fixed now, so you can call in. But essentially, we want you to call in and tell us what it's like to live at this momentous time in human history. And we got a bunch of calls of people, you know, telling us that they enjoy the show and they love the show. And we really appreciate those. And if you call in and leave us a voicemail, we'll send you a mixtape of all the songs that match with the season. But what we really want to know is call in and tell us a story and tell us what it feels like to live at this time and what you're seeing in your local area that really clues you into the themes that we talk about in the show. We'd love to get some voicemails in that regard. That's right. And also, if you feel really strongly about the message that we're, we're putting out here and you enjoy the interviews that we've been doing and you feel really, really passionate about donating, you can do so on the site. We have a link set up all ready to go. All you do is click and donate and it'll take you right over to PayPal where you can drop us a couple dollars if you feel passionate about the show you feel like donating to independent media and this is something that you are passionate about great opportunity to donate to, to the extra environmentalist we have listeners who have already donated to us we have nick in calgary who has sent us some dollars and we really really appreciate that yeah thanks to our fellow canadian listeners here across the provincial border there in Alberta. So thanks, Nick. We also received an, a donation from John in Tampa, Florida. And thanks so much for listening. He, he noted in his, his donation that he's been listening to us for a long time and he just wanted to throw us donation now. And, uh, you know, it's so great to have listeners all across North America and all across the world. So thanks so much, John. Thanks, John. And so we, we got some listener emails recently. And so it was really cool that Daniel wrote in from Copenhagen and heard that we mentioned another listener in Denmark there in Copenhagen. And uh, so they've connected now and have formed our first extra environmentalist terrorist cell. I mean, extra environmentalist fan club. <laughs> Fan yeah, club. fan club. Yeah. yeah. First extra environmentalist European chapter. 
So thanks guys for making the connection. And that's really what it's going to take as we move forward through these crises is people meeting up who understand the magnitude of what's going on and really building that kinship because those are the relationships that, that are going to be meaningful in the tumultuous times in our immediate future. Um, so thanks, Daniel, for taking that initiative. In terms of other thank yous that we want to throw out, thanks so much to Sophie Trilby, who wrote a song about 2012 when we asked her about uh, music for our 2012 episode and wrote a song about what it's like to live at this time. And if anybody else would enjoy having their music showcased on the Extra Environmentalist and it goes along with some of the themes that we talk about, we would be happy to have that on here. And that's a great time to mention our tremendous thanks to all of the musicians that we play on the show. A lot of them covers, remixes, but they all come from music blogs, and you can find links to all the music on our show notes if you check it out at extraenvironmentalist.com. So get on there, support those artists, and support those music blogs too. If you are in Powell River, British Columbia, we are now newly on the radio waves out at CJMP. You can listen to us at 10 p.m. on Wednesdays. Thanks so much to David for making that happen for us. And so that's our second radio affiliate. So we're excited to expand in further to British Columbia, away from Vancouver and two other outlets. So if you have a local radio station that's a community station that wants some free content that they can throw on their airwaves, we are some guys who are okay with talking to fill up an hour. So <laughs> let them know that they can fill their hour with our verbiage. And one interesting note about Powell River, British Columbia is they are launching a community currency system based on the LET system here in the next few months. So it's exciting to be in such a progressive community. We have a special announcement today. We are adding our first non-Justin and Seth member to the Extra Environmentalist team. Her name is Louisa and she will be joining us from the United Kingdom. Louisa will be heading up our effort on the Extra Environmentalist blog, which can be found at extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog. We welcome new members to the Extra Environmentalist blog like Louisa who wish to take on some responsibility in the extra environmentalist world they like to record audio stories they like to write text they like to take photos and justin and i are, are very comfortable with welcoming individuals to the extra environmentalist family teaching people if that needs to happen to editing to helping with all sorts of story building projects and you know this is why we're here we are here to help people learn to tell stories about these sorts of issues to help spread the message and to make it go further yeah so we'd love if you're interested in writing about your perspective on these stories or you have a story to tell about you know maybe your town is cutting funding on streetlights or something like that and you want to send us something we'll work with you to help make it better as a post on the blog and start telling your perspective and you know if you have a story about how you've been trying to talk to your family about energy and the environment let us know and we'll help you turn that into something that's meaningful to post on our blog and if you're interested in covering a story and you want to produce an audio piece for us we will help you turn that into something that is special and that people will enjoy listening to even if you have no experience if you have experience all the better but even if you have no experience so we're glad to act as editors. All you need to do is have the willingness to work hard and to be able to take critiques with a happy and smiling face. Happy and smiling emoticon. <laughs> so thanks again for listening to Extra Environmentalist number 34 with Morris Berman. Justin and I are happy to be your Extra Environmentalist co-hosts. And once again, from Vancouver to North Carolina, thank you so much for listening to the Extra Environmentalist. Stay well, be happy, and listen to that inner homunculus inside of your brain. 
pressure, economic, social, ethical, and religious pressure, invariably distort not only our action, but the quality of the brain. Language uses us rather than we use language. The instrument, which is the language, influences our action, our attitudes, thoughts, and so on. We don't use language. Language uses us. And therefore, language becomes an extraordinary pressure. I do not know if you have noticed it in your daily life. When you say, my wife, there's already a certain pressure. And we're saying also that when we use language, words, clearly, without the association connected with that word, either imaginative, romantic, or reactionary, then that word <coughs> will convey exactly what one means. Therefore, the communication becomes much easier when the, we realize that the word is not the thing, that the description is not the described, then language doesn't act or bring about a change in our attitudes and action. Ideals affect, oppress, and act as pressure upon our daily life. And is it possible not to have any ideals, but only deal with actually what is? Then there is no pressure whatsoever. Ideals bring about a conflict, a confusion of thought, contradiction, and therefore perpetual struggle between what is and what should be. And we also said, is it possible to live without ideals whatsoever? Which doesn't mean that one becomes non-idealistic in quotes. On the contrary, one lives with facts, with what is, and therefore our action is always accurate, correct, in relation to what is. Next time on The Extra Environmentalist. That's fundamentally what human beings are. We're like bees, exactly. I mean, when bees are going out looking for honey, they aren't really thinking about cross-pollination. They think they're just looking for honey, right? So their desire for honey is being used in a way by the planet itself, by plants, in order to help this ecological need to be fulfilled. And everything that is, is fulfilling the primary ecological need of the planet. The question becomes, what is the ecological need? And it's a question that's very rarely asked about almost anything. But it's the most fundamental one. If we want to be good students, if we want to be good ecologists, that's the thing we need to understand before we interfere. We need to understand what we're interfering with. Welcome to Good Morning America where America comes to cry. In recent news, in Three Lakes, Minnesota this morning, Joey Granger got hit by a bus. His grandmother shot the dog. We interrupt our regularly scheduled program for a special announcement from the European Union. Let's go to our reporter in the field, Samuel Sadface, to see what's happening. 
in Europe today. Now we are here at a press conference in Brussels where Nicolas Sarkozy and Angela Merkel are taking the stage and we're going to translate what they're saying now about the European debt crisis live. Sarkozy is beginning to speak. Today we gather together here in Brussels to announce the next stage of our available funding for the European debt crisis. All of the Eurozone economies are banding together to create a new fund to ensure solidarity of our European Union. That is why today we are announcing our fund to underwrite currently known European debts, the F-U-C-K-E-D fund. Together, we will all be a part of this new fund that introduces core strategies to ensure Eurozone solidarity. To talk more about our fund to underwrite currently known European debts, I will now let my colleague from Germany, Chancellor Merkel, speak about the details of our fund. Thank you, President Sarkozy. As the president has outlined, this fund will allow European Union countries such as Italy to use wine instead of cash. Places in Greece will be able to trade olives instead of cash. It is exciting to start using this F-U-C-K-E-D fund in all of its new forms. We are also hoping for the appearance of aliens from the sky to buy Italian and Greek bonds without an opportunity to contribute to being fucked. All of our countries will soon find that they are in the position of becoming hungry with plenty of Greece and no Turkey. Now is the time to get serious about distractions and not looking back and saying that I ran away from an opportunity to escape from this situation. Our hope is the Alien civilization will be complex enough that it is willing to invest in our Eurozone economies and will also enjoy large amounts of our wines. American banks have agreed to contribute $1 billion every time we play this song at an international press conference. Because our European Mediterranean coast members are suffering the most, we've also set up a system of random cruise liner crashes all along the coast. Lucky towns will now be inundated with hungry, angry tourists who will help to boost the economy. Our new fund to underwrite currently known European debts will ensure that together all Eurozone member states are a part of being fucked. And everyone is on their feet here, applauding the boldness and the solidarity of this new fund the fund to underwrite currently known European debts. Everyone truly knows this is the solution to the Euro crisis. Back to you in the Good Morning America studio.